Welcome to the uh, Free Rohingya Coalition Genocide Podcast. Um, I am Zani. I'm extremely pleased and uh, honored uh, to have um, a very distinguished guest and a longtime uh, colleague of mine. Uh, the, her name is Edith Marante, and she, uh, the, to the best of my knowledge, she is, you know, the um, the longest running Burma activist and and researcher, uh, looking at various aspects and cases of uh, Myanmar or Burma state's oppression before the country became a Myanmar in 1989. He did set up um, a, a, perhaps a, the earliest activist research website uh, called Project Maji, and she is an author of the two um, books on Burma. One is, um, you know, a Burmese looking glass, um, <clears throat> and then She's traveled extensively um, across Burma, including some of the um, armed conflict or war zones of uh, Kachin State, um, you know, parts of Chin State. Uh, she's, she has met um, Rohingya survivors of Myanmar's earlier waves of uh, genocidal killings. And she has been very close to Basan Cha Island, where uh, the Bangladeshi government is reportedly planning to relocate 100,000 Rohingya survivors of Myanmar genocide from Cox's Bazaar. Uh, and so, um, Edith, um, welcome and, and, and thank you for, uh, you know, sharing your thoughts on first uh, Basancha. Why is Basancha such a controversial uh, place for Rohingya relocation by Dhaka? Hi, Zarni. It's great to be on your podcast, and um, you're you're one of the longest-running activists too, and and certainly the earliest um, internet-based activist in almost any human rights field. And then we should also give credit to our friend uh, uh, U Cha Win, who was really, really the earliest, longest-running uh, Burma activist. Um, even before I was involved in the 80s, he was standing in front of the U.S. Capitol with Burma signs. So um, he's now in his mid 80s, and 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 he just emailed me and saying that uh, he wants to respond to this to David Steinberg a genocide denial in the Washington Post, uh, the letter to the editor, and he is fuming at the age age of uh, 85 <laughs> that uh, you know the old uh, American academic would still be you know <laughs> uh, you know playing apologist role for the Myanmar military and uh, now uh, you know the Aung San Suu Kyi so sorry to interrupt but just wanted to give you information <laughs> that Ucho Win, Uncle Ucho Win, is still very active in his mid fighting the good fight yeah yeah so um, Basan Cha, you know, it's, it's commonly referred to as an island in the Bay of Bengal. Um, that kind of dignifies what it is. The Cha is basically um, silt from the river delta, the Ganges, the great river system that appeared there about only 20 years ago. It, this thing didn't even exist. So it's a mixture of some sand and some mud and some random vegetation grew on it. And it's really, really flat. And it's stuck out there in the middle. It's about um, 20 kilometers from even the nearest um, inhabited island. So it's super remote. 
And this is an area that is incredibly vulnerable to cyclonic storms, like giant hurricanes. Um, of history's 35 deadliest storms, 25 of those happened in that exact area in the Bay of Bengal. <coughs> in 1991, I was in one of those and that killed 139,000 people in a single night um, due to the wind and the tidal surge and the flooding of offshore islands. And uh, I was in Cox's Bazaar that night. And after that, I went out to some of those islands and saw the devastation that had happened. So I was seeing firsthand how incredibly vulnerable even a larger, more established real island can be to these storms. So a few years ago, this scheme appeared to um, take advantage of a big empty thing, uh, landmass, uh, and put Rohingya refugees on it. Um, it was a bad idea from the get-go, but somehow they got a major Chinese construction company involved, and lo and behold, a $280 million construction project happens to build embankments around the island, and, um, crammed together barracks buildings that people would be able to live in. Um, those are on stilts, which might mitigate some flooding, but that won't help much when their roofs blow off in these incredibly strong winds. So the Bangladesh government has run hot and cold on this scam all along. Sometimes it's like they're not gonna do it, or the UN opposed it, they can't do it. And then it really seemed like it was, um, to use an apt metaphor, dead in the water. But people have continued to flee the Bangladesh refugee camps to get to Malaysia or Indonesia. And Malaysia sent back some of these people by boat. So 300 of them came back in the middle of the pandemic and somebody in the Bangladesh government thought it was a good idea to stick them, instead of returning them to the refugee camps they came from, to stick them on this island. So they're being used as lab rats in this very, you know, when I've seen aerial pictures of Basanchar, my reaction was these buildings are very concentrated together. This camp, on this little island is very concentrated. Hmm, concentrated camp, yes. That's really is. So these people are women are now. And it's been in the news this week because some campers who are kind of off in the refugee camps um, see for yourself. This is pretty kind of a mission by the Bangladesh officials as an effort to convince people that they would want to go there in the middle of nowhere with no access to basically anything. Um, and cell phone video happened showing the women in particular 
screaming and pleading to be taken off that island to get out of there. Um, so they, they they, are super they, these, there. I've seen that uh, video clip on Twitter as yeah. well, where yeah. the, uh, the you are referring to the very first group of um, Rohingya who were pushed back by Malaysian authorities out yeah. into the South China Sea and all the way and then of course like the traffickers brought them all the way back to the yeah. uh, coastline of bangladesh and the bangladeshi uh, navy or the coast guard picked them up or found them on an island stranded somewhere on the shore of bangladesh mm -hmm. and then they were um, you know shipped as a first experimental group to basanchor island and then you were saying the, the video clip that, uh, you know, uh, the, the cell phone captured, um, where I saw like woman screaming and yelling, crying, basically like, you know, my Bangladeshi um, uh, uh, the videographer friend uh, based in um, the, uh, Cambridge, UK, uh, he said that they were just saying, don't leave us here. We want to go back you, with you. This place, we cannot live here. So these are people, Rohingya themselves, you know, um, a lot of them women and then police were Bangladeshi police on the island uh, were trying to restrain them or, you know, remove them away from the uh, visiting delegation of 40 plus Rohingyas that Bangladeshi authorities brought on a boat to this island, you know, basically to, 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 to get them to convince their own uh, uh, fellow refugee Rohingyas in Cox's Bazaar. This is a great place to live, much better than Cox's Bazaar, less congested, uh, buildings are well built, uh, you know, there will be electricity, all that stuff, right? So, I mean, I'm just trying to fill in the, um, you know, who the women are. They're basically, they are kept. These are Rohingya survivors of uh, the genocide, now kept against their will on this island where they say, we can no longer live here. We want to rejoin our survival community in Cox's Bazaar. And they're obviously that they will be left behind. Yeah, they will not be allowed to go back to Cox's Bazaar. That would just completely you know, trigger the collapse of the entire you know, uh, relocation plan for 100,000 Rohingyas. Well, that, that plan is always in danger of collapse for its you know, lack of, humanitarian qualities um, or practicality and you know maybe this will convince some more people um, in charge that this is a bad idea and it was initially justified by as a COVID um, quarantine so they're long past that stage um, you know Bangladesh has done amazing things for the Rohingya people and you've really provided a safe haven for decades now but Bangladesh and the international humanitarian community have let the Rohingyas down in many ways. And part of it is by always treating them as these temporary refugees who, you know, don't need anything more than, you know, a tarp over their head, basically. And there's been denial of education, there's been internet cutoffs, there's been all kinds of things that are not helpful or realistic. When what they could have is what I had been a proponent of back in early 2018, a sustainable urban space. I mean, these refugee camps are bigger than the city I live in, Portland, Oregon. 
and that needs to be recognized. They are real urban spaces with creative, entrepreneurial, intelligent people um, who are really interested in being educated. They can do green industry there. They can do green building. They can do all sorts of things. And then when they do get to go back to their homeland as they don't want to, then this becomes a really useful, sustainable urban space and educational space for Bangladesh itself. So there's huge potential there and to get distracted on, you know, let's dump everybody on an island instead. Yeah, um, um, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Disaster you know, will happen for all, all concerned, including Bangladesh will just look terrible for doing that. Yeah, I mean, the, the biggest exodus uh, took place, um, you know, basically the fall of 2017, you know. But as you, um, you know, rightly pointed out, Bangladesh uh, um, has been a generous host uh, over the last, uh, let's just put it, 40 years, right? This yeah, is the generations have grown yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there are, there, are, there are still like uh, Rohingya refugees who were born in the camp. Some of them have gone to say like local colleges, to, you know, uh, that they became fluent in local languages that developed local customs and, you know, uh, they're very uh, adept at uh, being integrated into the local community. But I think that that is what Bangladeshi government doesn't want. They don't want integration. Uh, you know, they want the Rohingyas to go back. But, you know, while recognizing the generosity and uh, humanity of Bangladesh government successively that have uh, uh, been on the receiving end of essentially the impact of Myanmar's or my own country's genocide, right? But Bangladesh has also done extremely illegal things like reformar, you know, the uh, sending back refugees under duress to places of origin where they became or they would be uh, you know, most definitely subject to another wave of violence and destruction. Yeah? That is against international law. Whether you, you know, a country signs a genocide convention or not, the international law applies to all uh, political states uh, that are members of the United Nations. This is not like ICC statute, where if a, a state does not recognize the jurisdiction and not a party to the statute, that state cannot be tried at ICC or the criminals from that state cannot be tried at ICC. But the, the refugee convention, the humanitarian law applies to all states equally, right? And whether they allow UNHCR to operate on their soil or not is a different issue. But no state can ethically, morally, and legally forcibly return the, the, the you know, the, uh, the, um, the uh, refugees and the asylum seekers to places where they will face, you know, basically um, um, death and, and uh, other uh, oppression. That's illegal. Bangladesh has done it. And, you know, as we speak today, yeah. they, 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 yeah. have, they have erecting you know, barbed wire fences and putting CCTV up all across, you know, 30 plus camps. Um, the current Bangladesh government has not done the refoulement as much as previously. The first time I encountered the Rohingya refugees, it was actually right after that cyclone had happened. I met some of the first families that came out 
1991 in what would become another mass, mass exodus of people through 1991 and 1992. And that ended up with the Bangladesh government literally starving the refugees back across the border to Burma by denying them food shipments. Yeah, so, so just so they will go back. Way worse history of this, you know, in the past. Um, there is also currently an area known as no man's land where people are right on the border and have been since 2017 in really precarious camps, which were recently terribly flooded themselves. Um, the area where the most of the refugee camps are around, Bang, uh, around Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh is not quite as cyclone vulnerable as right on the coast, some of those areas, and definitely not as horrible as the, the island situation. But it's, it is very vulnerable to cyclones and very vulnerable to flooding. Some of them are in these muddy hillsides, there've been landslides, there've been all kinds of problems like that. Again, it's a total lack of urban planning for what is de facto a city. Yeah, the, um, uh, you know, how, I mean, you have been to other refugee camps, uh, Karen camps, uh, you've been to the uh, uh, Kachin war zones, uh, yeah. Chin state, yeah. Um, how would you speak about different ethnic communities in Burma subjected to various policies of you know, uh, essentially internal colonization, uh, resource extraction, population control, land grab. Yeah. Um, can you can you tell us what it is like for Kachins and Karens and Shans and other people to live under decades of Burmese military rule? And 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 you know, Burma is still effectively you know, uh, run by the military. I was, you know, Suchi is just a nominal um, head of, uh, you know, de facto head of state that, you know, that is allowed to do a public relations job for the military at best, you know. Yeah. Yeah, Burma, Burma has all of those things that you you mentioned, you know, from, from land grabs to resource extraction to neocolonialism. It had colonialism and neocolonialism. It's one of those places. Um, Burma is a multi-ethnic, multicultural region of various independent peoples, um, some of whom became these um, warring civilizations, other of whom stayed in the mountains and had their own cultures. Um, and so then as the, as the British and other colonists will do, they drew a, a line around it. So then you have a country um, where people were trying to coexist and then they become involved in a massive um, power play of the Second World War. So some of these ethnic groups sided with one side, some with the other, some with the Japanese, some with the allies. And as so often happens, um, those who are really useful to the outside powers are just ditched at the end. You know, we can see this in Kurdistan and, and many other places in the world. Um, I've just been writing about the 
special forces um, that the U.S. had as Detachment 101 during World War II and how they could have, they wouldn't have done anything without the Kachin soldiers. Um, in fact, that war would have been lost in Burma without the Kachin soldiers. So then the war ends, but conflicts between these ethnic groups continued and um, there was democracy for a while, military took over. And as you noted, it basically is still in charge. So ever since their mission has been to either subdue or wipe out any suspect ethnicity, um, minority religions, dissident intellectuals, artists, hip hop rappers, whatever, whatever faces off against them. And they've been totally ruthless in their tactics and they've been completely consistent in their tactics everywhere. What happened to the Rohingyas in a very concentrated time frame and geographical area in 2016 and again in 2017, even on a grander scale, um, has happened on a much more stretched out time frame, a much more stretched out geographical area in many, many other regions of Burma. Um, and then the other aspect is that people fought back against them. So that leads to insurgency, counterinsurgency, and all their tactics are justified as part of the war and the counterinsurgency, as were the attacks on the Rohingyas in 2016 and 2017. This was supposedly some mopping up uh, operation against some tiny little rebel attacks. Um, and then there's still war going on there up in northern Arakan, northern Rakhine state, with the Arakan army. So this is just a constant, constant syndrome. Add into that, as you mentioned, there's resource extraction. So Burma has the curse of resources. It has oil, it has minerals, it has, um, well, it had, uh, teak and other hardwoods until that was completely deforested for the benefit of Thailand and China. Um, so all these things are taken out of Burma and they're taken out of Burma with military cooperation and profit. Um, same goes for the, the drug trade generally. There's a lot of military collusion with groups that are involved in narcotics trade in Burma and the, the benefits don't really go to the local people at all a lot of uh, awareness lately of the jade trade in Kachin State up in the north. This is where the most precious imperial jade that people in China want to put on their wrists or in their ears um, is found. The beautiful green jade is mined there by exploited people who travel there because they're so desperately poor in places like Rakhine State or Magway or Sagang Division, they come all the way up there and end up digging on these muddy hillsides and often killed in landslides there. So there's a lot of benefit for the people at the very top, which tends to be a military elite and a crony capitalist elite in this country. Um, so that's the, again, the whole neocolonial syndrome where you take the possessions of these other outlying areas of these other people, these upcountry people. Um, my, my main two words of what's needed 
in those regions of the country are troop withdrawal. Um, without those army bases and those army commanders leaving those places, there's no peace, there's no justice, and there's no economic equality. Um, and that's something under this, you know, supposed democratic government with elections and um, the acclaim of the world um, that's been in place since 2015 or so. They've never withdrawn the troops from these areas. Um, in Chin State, there's very little armed conflict in the north where I was in 2016. But there's a huge military occupation in Sagang Division. There's never been really armed rebellion, but there's huge mineral resources. So there's massive army bases up there. And then when they decide to, they'll take special light infantry divisions from these bases up in the north and send them down to places like Rakhine State to do the worst of their dirty work, the worst of their human rights violations. Yeah, I, th I think the, uh, you know, one of the most crucial things that um, often is overlooked either intentionally or out of ignorance uh, in any or just about every, uh, you know, reportage or um, writing about Burma is the fact that you know Burma is essentially um, a, a patchwork of um, you know ethnic communities um, that continue to be colonized uh, by the uh, central uh, dominant uh, Burmese, particularly the military. Yeah? So the, the, the armed forces uh, known as Tamado or the Royal Armed Forces or Army, is uh, ethnically defined uh, because you know it, it is like you know if I think like you know sharing my thoughts on this, um, I see a striking similarity between uh, 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 former Yugoslavia and uh, 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 Burma or Myanmar today. Uh, you know the, the Burma was midwived uh, through the um, Second World War. Uh, that you know, the, as you pointed out earlier, different ethnic communities, you know, uh, you know, with shifting political allegiances and loyalties between the fascist Japanese and uh, you know the uh, colonial white um, the British rule, and uh, you know, you see that you saw that in um, Yugoslavia under Marshal Tito, uh, you know, uh, um, the uh, umbrella block of about six different ethnic communities, you know, uh, the Serbs, the Bosnians, the Croatians, and, and whatnot. Um, you know, the, the, they were unified by the external enemy of fascists or Nazis, right, uh, in Europe. But in the case of Burma, uh, the, we were unified by two different um, uh, external oppressor one was the uh, the the, uh, the british colonizer the other one was a japanese fascist occupier and uh, as you you uh, as we all know what happened to yugoslavia in 1994-95 after the death of uh, the founding father marshal tito right and so what i you know i i i fear is that the balkanization of burma under the facade of this so-called 
uh, democratization uh, by Aung San Suu Kyi government. What we are seeing is a, a you know foundational uh, 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 degeneration of an, a new nation state that came into being at the end of Second World War. We have today a total of 50, five zero uh, plus, um, you know, armed ethnic groups with uh, varying sizes of strengths and troop, uh, uh, you know, uh, control. And, and if you look at Rakhine State, you know, which is uh, our um, the subject of our uh, conversation, Rakhine itself um, is a, is a former colony of Burma reintegrated as, as a region or province of Burma after independence. And, and what people don't realize is that um, the Second World War never ended in Burma. And in 1945, you know, August, that, you know, the uh, Allied won the war. Um, and in 1947, in Rakhine State today, uh, that, that we call Rakhine at the time, Arakan, right? Both the Rohingya Muslims and Rakhine Buddhists took up arms, not to fight against each other, but to fight the, um, you know, what they consider the old colonizer returning to Rakhine State, which is like the Burmese civilian and military elite coming to rule. And so I think we need to start talking about Rakhine and what happened in Rakhine as a colonial genocide. You know, we, we know that the Arakan uh, army has issued, uh, you know, statements after statements saying that they do not consider Muslims of Rakhine or Arakan their enemy. They said the Burmese occupier is the common enemy. So this is from Arakan, um, you know, uh, army. And so the, uh, to, to fill you in on this, the Aragon army uh, is probably one of the most progressive, non-racialized and secularist armed group with a political vision that want to reclaim Rakhine as a sovereign Republic of Aragon. That's why they, they call themselves Aragon army and they want to essentially support the Rohingya's quest for um, accountability at ICC, ICJ, and any other international tribunal in the future. That is why today's New York Times, where I'm sure you read it, uh, the uh, two Burmese um, you know, army deserters uh, are now reportedly in the hands of ICC authorities where they confessed to killing over a hundred Rohingyas and they would likely become eyewitnesses for any future uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, criminal proceedings. And so the, this is what is so fascinating about the Arakan. The progressive Rakhine Buddhists trying to do everything they can to support the Rohingyas, Muslims. They will not call them you know, by name, but for various reasons, but they are supporting Rohingyas' quest for accountability, and they claim they want to have peace and reconciliation with Muslims of Rakhine. Do you have any comment on this 
you know, scenario where uh, the uh, Buddhist groups and um, the Muslims re reconciling and recognizing that um, the Burmese in Central Plains, you know, people like Aung San Suu Kyi, her government, and the military are their enemy, not the um, historical and contemporary inhabitants of uh, Rakhine, or as they would call it, Arakan. Well, I remember back in the 90s, and people would say like, oh, you know, if the military, you know, wasn't in charge, uh, you know, Burma would turn into Yugoslavia, and, and we would say, it already is. It, are, it already is. Everything that's going on there is going on here in Burma. Um, the scars of World War II are still there, definitely. Um, my most recent article is called Drawing Soldiers in Burma. It was about the, the British and other war artists who traveled through there and, and drew the pictures of ethnic people like Rohingyas and Chins who were fighting for the Allied side back then and what a continuity there is now to the war in Kachin State and the war in Shan State and how artists, including myself, have depicted that. So it's very vivid still. And there was horrible inter-ethnic violence during the war between Rohingyas and Rakhines, or to put it broadly, Muslims and Buddhists. This could have been overcome. It's been overcome in many places after World War II, but instead- Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, as you know, like, you know, the, the, uh, the, the Karens and the Burmese, us, you know, I'm, I am Burmese ethnically, we were also killing each other, yeah? And, and, right. and today, like, yeah, you would not say that Korans and um, Burmese will be killing each other anywhere they find, you know? Why, why do we keep, like, you know, uh, putting, exactly yeah. sharing yeah. this um, historical so, memory up? Right, so what happened were, you know, racist elements among the Rakhines were encouraged. Um, there was massive displacement of villages in Northern Rakhine State, in Northern Arakan. This is very important. Um, tribal people were relocated, like the Kami and Moro people, indigenous people from the mountains to the lowlands. Um, prisoners were taken from central Burma and settled in Rohingya land. Um, Rakhines were shifted around. All of these people were part of these military plans to set up border zones, economic exploitation, their view of security, their fear of Bangladesh, all of this played into horrible de destabilization of that entire region, which affected Rakhines, it affected mountain people, it, reflect, it, it also affected Rohingyas. Another thing to be super aware of is that this was one of the major, major rice growing areas of the entire country. There's the Irrawaddy Delta and there's Arakan. And that's been exploited since the days of the British. And this wealthy agricultural place ended up as one of the poorest states in the entire country in Myanmar or Burma to this day. Yeah. So at the time when the genocidal violence of 2017 happened, it was getting to be rice harvest. And what happened afterwards, the immediate aftermath, was bringing in uh, Kutoba Japanese rice 
machinery company um, equipment to harvest the rice from those obliterated villages. So that was all confiscated and the cattle that had been there, the livestock, all of it was confiscated. So there was this whole economic element to it. And- um, But you know, like what's even more outrageous is that the rice that, that Rohingya grew and uh, they, you know, they were uh, driven out uh, or like they were genocidally purged, not just simply driven out. Uh, you know, they happened to survive because Bangladesh opened the borders. And, you know, we had never entertained the, uh, the hypothetical or, or even the, the very real possibility that, uh, the, that you, know, the, the, you know, hundreds of thousands of Rohingyas would have been killed or died of starvation along the Bangladeshi-Burmese <laughs> border. Had Dhaka, the authorities in Dhaka, decide not to open the border? You know, obviously, the Burmese military, you know, uh, must have known that this was a very real scenario and they were prepared to let that scenario happen, right? right? right. Uh, but, you know, yeah, if, if, we're in, if, it, if, you know, Sheikh Hasina government decided to you know uh, uh, stay firm and kept the border closed i mean they kept the border i mean mind you uh, bangladesh kept the border for the first uh, 10 days of this operation and only under internal and international outcry you know uh, did dhaka finally open the borders right and so the the rice that, that rohingyas uh, were unable to harvest was later harvested by Wakines and others using Japanese uh, harvesting technology and even maybe like, you know, seed capital. That rice was sold to Bangladesh and fed, you know, using the humanitarian dollars. And then, and then Rohingya survivors of genocide were fed by their, you know, with their own rice that they left in Burma. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it reminds me of the Irish potato famine, you know, the, the deliberate uh, colonial, you know, uh, confiscation of agricultural goods and denial of aid and exploitation. Um, on my uh, project website, Project Maji, M-A-J-E dot org, um, there's a list of Twitter threads that I've done of history aspects of, of many different types of environmental and human rights issues and military issues in Burma. And one of them is called Rice, Rakhine and Rohingya, I think it's called. Anyway, it outlines from colonial days how that rice was shipped out. And um, right up until the point when these combine harvesters were taken in, this mechanized harvesting and as you said, you know, and then it ends up with the irony of, yeah, selling your own rice back to you or, or giving it to you as charity. And, and that charity thing kind of brings up um, something that we were talking about on the, the worldwide um, Zoomcast um, that you did in commemoration of the 2017 Genocide Day, um, which is that the Rohingyas are not just charity cases, they're not just victims, they're not just people to be like 
thrown rice off the back of a truck and put in tar pots, <coughs> that they are people with agency, with intellect, with education, with a history of poetry and civilization um, as much as anyone else in the world. And so much has been done quote, for them without consultation with them. I mean, Basa and Char is this mud island is like the worst example of that. But, but even just everyday um, aid projects are, have been done really top down. And um, this is 2020 and that has to stop for sure. Well, I mean, I'm not, not any decisions made without their direct involvement. Yeah, I mean, not a lot has been changed, you know, since the, uh, the, 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 the days of uh, Burma activism in the US and others uh, where, you know, brown faces like men and women uh, appear before the congressional committees and uh, television cameras and whatnot. Uh, you know the the just uh, the the our role was um, to to tell uh, you know the, the tear jerking you know tragic uh, personal and communal stories, uh, whereas uh, you know the white Western policymakers and analysts and uh, journalists and others are uh, to propose you know highly sophisticated uh, uh, policy uh, recommendation that has not changed. What what has changed is like INGOs have become a bit cleverer. So they use the language of empowering Rohingyas, right? And they use the language of, uh, you know, working with Rohingyas. Whereas in fact, uh, you know, what they do is like out of 1 million Rohingya, they will pick uh, just a, a tiny number of uh, elite Rohingyas who speak fluent English and uh, have a document to travel around the world. You know, these Rohingyas would appear in every single um, you know, public forum. And then, you know, they basically the INGOs and the Western policy world have uh, become a bit smarter and they begin to adopt victims, you know, uh, as if like, you know, you adopt a pet you adopt a victim and and then like you say like this is the agency but the agency is like dancing to your tune you know yeah you know things did change from when i was first doing this work and my work is in information so basically first person interviews with people affected and nobody would accept it unless it came via, you know, a big amnesty or human rights watch or something. You know, there was no way. So your only chance was like, you do this, you know, little typewritten report and hope like that they'll read it because they used to say there was no information available back in right, the 80s. Right, right. So then eventually, especially for Michonne women's um, documentation, you mean Their Shun, documentation got so good nobody Swan, could count it. Yes, and um, so gradually the reports from the actual people in Burma would get to the outside world and would be accepted. And then there was a really, really noticeable exception to that. In 2016, when Rohingyas overseas were getting from their relatives um, video of what was called a clearance operation, which again, to bring it to the um, 
British Isles reminded me of the Highland clearances, another form of genocide, you know, in the centuries ago. These so-called clearance operations, which were genocidal in the same methodology as 2017, but on a somewhat smaller scale, the people were, were sending out, you know, the villages burning and running away. And I had not seen that, you know, things discounted so badly by the international community in decades. And the international was like, oh, well, you know, this could be fake, this could be somewhere else, it's, you know, it's just cell phone video. And so people didn't take it seriously enough in 2016. They didn't take it seriously enough initially in 2017 either. Yeah, I know, like, there's you know, a, a mass of it at that point because people have cell phones now, you know, in Burma, all over the place, even remote areas. There was so much of it that they had to. And, and the credit for that is on the, the diaspora of Rohingyas overseas who did the heavy, heavy lift of making the world aware of it so that random people in Portland, Oregon know the name Rohingya. They know something happened. Yeah, I mean, um, like, you know, the, the, the repeat Eventually of translates into some accountability. Um, and we'll see what happens with these guys who defected who, yeah, between the two of them, supposedly they killed 180 people. So, you know, these are really efficient little killing machines, these Tomadaw privates are. And, you know, they do it all over the country and they did it like it was a factory job, like a slaughterhouse. Yeah, no, I, I think, I think this, this is, 2017. Yeah, Edith, I mean, this is most definitely welcome news. But what, what really angers me is, you know, that you mentioned about the role of, uh, you know, Rohingyas on the ground you know, like uh, the documenting on their little cell phones and sending, you know, video clips using WhatsApp and other apps, right? There are, there are a number of Rohingya activists and researchers, you know, like they, they play multiple, they wear multiple hands, yeah? That some of them develop research skills out of like survival necessities. Some of them become citizen journalists. Some of them blog. Some of them and, are still and, and, in there doing that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So yeah. there, there, there is this gentleman that I personally know who has been blogging and sending, you know, like information through his uh, the Twitter and, you know, like Facebook and like blog. He was flagging this issue that, uh, you know, uh, a new a local uh, indigenous person who was a false porter, you know, used by the Myanmar army to carry weapons and heavy uh, munition boxes and whatnot. He overheard Burmese military battalion commander. Yeah, this was back in September 2017. In, in real time, real space, he, this mule uh, um, you know, uh, one of the ethnic um, uh, the men in the Rohingya uh, or Rakhine area overheard the Burmese battalion commander telling his subordinates, privates, insurgents, and corporates, yeah, kill any Galam. Galam means like, you know, forgive my word, uh, the, for, uh, you know, nigger in the Burmese um, context, right? Kalam, you know, kill all Galams, men and women and babies. Right. including babies yeah and this is that is precisely the new york times news headline kill all 
including right. baby, right? And this, yeah, this was almost exactly three years ago, a Rohingya man citing a eyewitness flagging, you know, calling for world's attention. He was completely ignored, yeah? And, uh, the, the, and, and also, you know, like these, um, these two army deserters, they were part of a, a group of four or five that were captured by the Arakan army. And the Arakan army, uh, the uh, secularist, progressive, non-racist Rakhine group, yeah, they made it their strategic project to release every piece of evidence they acquire or they already have that established Myanmar army's war crimes and other atrocity crimes in order to support any type of international investigation and ultimately to support the Rohingyas uh, in their, the latter's quest for international accountability. So these, these two men were already interviewed by Arakan Army in May. And the first you know, interviews were um, uploaded on 28th of May. Yeah, so June, July, August. So like three months after Arakan Army uploaded these videos with English subtitles. Yeah, and so so this points to what you were saying. Unless a huge news organization or unless yeah. a huge multi-million-dollar uh, human rights organization such as the Amnesty International or Human Rights Watch or 45 rights get involved. The local brown people's knowledge and expertise and evidence is not taken as credible. I mean, this in and of itself is a form of neo-colonialism in play in the human rights world. Yeah, and well, of course the International Criminal Court is the hugest, right? This is the big one. So at least it, it's it's gone all the way. Um, yeah, I remember when the Arakan army, which by the way has had its own human rights issues with local people, including Chin civilians. Yes, um, yes. I mean, no, the, I am, the, the I'm day, fully aware. And and, and they yeah. any any group that that is involved in like you know a uh, 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 major rights uh, violations, including torture and whatnot. Uh, ought to be condemned, whether it's Arakan Army or Burmese Army. I, I'm with you completely. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not torture per, per se, but they definitely held civilians against their will. Um, but as you mentioned, um, politically, they have definitely become much more um, progressive and recognizing um, the necessity, really, in their region of coexisting with other people of different religions, different ethnicities. And yeah, I also remember, you know, months ago them saying we've got explosive firsthand information on what happened to the Rohingya people. And, you know, from the Burma watchers, it got kind of a wow. And from the rest of the world, it didn't. So um, this, is, this is the delayed wow factor right now with these guys. You know, the whole um, 
phenomenon of the International Criminal Court and also the International Court of Justice, Court of Justice, the ICC and the ICJ investigations of, of Burma for what happened to the Rohingyas is something that is kind of amazing, you know, for those of us who have been working on this a long time, that level of international accountability, of any accountability whatsoever, is kind of astounding because it's so beyond anything that's ever happened before. Certainly never inside Burma itself. There's been no transitional justice. There's been no, um, you know, truth and reconciliation process. None of that under this supposed democracy or post-military government. No, nobody has been held accountable for just decades and decades of the severest human rights violations in that country. Um, <coughs> one of my threads is about basically a shoebox. Um, I have a box on that bookshelf in back of me um, of index cards. That was how I did a report back in the 1990s. I did two reports by writing specific incidents that were reported of human rights violations in various regions of, of the country, each one on an index card, and then they were color coded by region, and then they were sorted by which military units did what. And also if they said, a lot of times they didn't know the names of the officers, but if they had it, um, that went on there too. So those got sorted out and typewritten and photocopied into these reports at the time and, and mailed to people as we used to do. And so then recently, you know, on Twitter, um, I thought, oh, I'll do one of these history threads about that. And one of the things I wrote in it was, well, none of these people, none of these people in this shoebox, you know, have ever been held accountable in any way they walk among you they play golf they play with their grandchildren some of them may be in they may be in the government of burma itself this you know hybrid democracy military government. they could be there the people who did these acts who did these things these unspeakable but we speak about them all the time violations of human rights so um well I mean, the only we, accountability is you know in in uh fancy cities in europe i guess that's the accountability that we have for now yeah i mean like you know this this is not simply because you know the military continues to be the perpetrator perpetrators of um you know um, all grave crimes you know that are in international law books but Aung San Suu Kyi herself, you know, unequivocally told, uh, you know, the um, um, Tomas O'Hara Quintana, uh, the predecessor of uh, Young Hee Lee, uh, in, you know, in, in the uh, special repertoire on human rights situation in Myanmar position from 2008 to 2014. I mean, you know, in one of my uh, conversations on this uh, podcast series, uh, you know, Tomas Quintana said pointedly, Aung San Suu Kyi told him she does not believe in law or court. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, the Quintana came from Chile, 
yeah, or Argentina, and and Argentina, Chile, Brazil, all these like you know South American countries, they they lived under severe military dictatorships. They went through like, various forms of like you know uh, massive uh, atrocity, uh, you know uh, uh, crimes, right? And um, sh he was advising her, you can you know, establish a truth and reconciliation commission, you can pursue justice, and then that becomes leverage for you to push for democratic reforms. And then she said, I don't believe in law. Yeah. And so you, we, we have two major institutions. You know, NLD is just a fief dumb for Suji. Suji is the institution, right? And, uh, so then you've got the armed forces, Tamador, with you know the, the different uh, commanders in chief. These entities openly oppose any form of truth and reconciliation, transitional justice, or any type of internal accountability processes. Right, and so so the, all the, uh, the the oppressed communities have to turn to for any type of you know, justice or even a sense or feeling of justice being done, semblance of it is the international community. Yeah? That's why I think the uh, the kind of work that you have done over the decades or the, you know, Kevin Hapner with the Korean Human Rights, uh, you know, uh, the, the documentation group, uh, KGHR, right? And um, they, you know, over the last, uh, you know, 20, 30 years, um, there is a massive collaborative effort between international researchers and activists and, uh, and the, uh, the victim communities themselves. But, you know, I have never seen uh, a victim community like, uh, you know, uh, Rohingyas who have been treated as if they had absolutely nothing to contribute to. You know, Shans and Kachins and, and, you know, Karens, they were at least treated with some degree of respect, but not Rohingyas. I mean, like, it is shocking. You know, people who say they support Rohingya uh, freedom or homeland or, you know, the end to genocide. You know, on the, you know, off the back of the Rohingyas, they were just like saying like, oh, these are broken people. You know, they're, 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 they can't work together. You know, they will never be... Um, you're strong enough to have their own, yeah, yeah. you know, you, you know what I mean. The, the, what they call trauma porn, yeah. Um, well, you know, back in the day, the Rohingyas were kept out of um, ethnic rebel alliances um, by the Rakhine racism of the time, you know, and so so that hindered them because they didn't have these networks that some of the other ethnic groups did internationally and in the border countries. And then there's also just prejudice against Muslims in general, which they are. And then there's that weird disconnect of many Islamic countries um, not having supported Rohingya human rights <coughs> For decades, um, all of a sudden in 2017 they started doing it um, because everybody was doing it, so it's okay. But that certainly didn't help the ongoing genocidal situation that they are experiencing. So, 
Um, you know, there are definitely patterns in it, um, but yeah, there's also patterns in our information um, and information is power. That's why the Rohingyas need their internet on all the time um, in Bangladesh, not to mention in the concentration camps, they still are in uh, Sitwe or Akyab in Burma. Yeah, about 100, um, 100 They need that access. That's super important for their firsthand um, investigations because there are people still in there, still in the country, Rohingyas, who are still getting information out. And um, basically, I, rem I remember, you know, early 2000s going to Europe for some testimony maybe in Geneva and David Arnott of the online Burma library, who was another early info gatherer, yeah. like coming up and we had hard copies back then, right? So he had one of those dolly things on wheels, you know, <laughs> and he had a stack of paper that was almost as tall as he was of documentation on specific, I think it was just on forced labor issues, you know? So you kind of look at that and it's like, well, maybe we're wrong, huh? Um, no, there's been a preponderance of evidence um, from every area of the country, including Arakan, you know, dating back through the 90s, if not earlier. So it's not like people didn't know. It's not like people still don't know. They know. It's a question. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah, the, the, fact, the impunity and getting, getting troop withdrawal. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that the United Nations General Assembly had mandated special repertoire or special investigative right, position right, yeah? uh, since 1992-93. What that means is that, you know, there's at least, you know, 25 solid years of documentation, literally thousands and thousands and thousands yeah. of, you know, UN reports, about pages of UN report, yeah, yeah. reports. And, uh, you know, still, you know, but the lawyers and others would say, well, the, you know, the wheel of justice turns so slowly and, you know, and then, but, but I think, I think like any, any Rohingya that's listening today or even like, you know, other uh, uh, members of the uh, oppressed uh, minority nationality communities in Burma, they need to know that, you know, the, neither the ICC nor the International Court of Justice will give them the freedom, the homeland, or the, you know, the end of military oppression. Because, you know, if you look at like all the, um, it, it, um, you know, the, the judicial rulings around the world, the, you know, the, the victims often, almost often, without exception, feel completely dissatisfied whether you look at you know uh the uh, the bosnian situation or because i i, th I think you know that the, there has to be a serious effort to inform the uh, rohingyas and shans and kachins and others that they will not get what they are fighting for which is the end of burmese military occupation and the end of Burmese colonial structure through international justice mechanism. That just is not conceivable. What do you yeah, think? Yeah, but it, it's something called, it's still, it's accountability and accountability is at least a partial antidote to impunity. 
um, something will stop it. And it's sort of a metaphor. I live in Portland, Oregon, and um, which seemed like, you know, just a, a charming little city <laughs> and still war is zone, war extremely, zone, yeah? <laughs> extremely charming little city. But now, um, you know, my friends are putting on bulletproof vests as, as correspondents to go to the demonstrations that I participate in here at night because we've got um, severe police violence here. The reason why I'm even bringing this up because it so pales in comparison to anything in Burma where it's all live ammo um, is that one of our local um, amazing black activists here in Portland is a guy named Max Smith. <laughs> he's the editor of a hip hop magazine and he's a, a super, super lucid um, political thinker. And, you know, he said, come for the protest, stay for the revolution. But he's also said, basically, what we're doing here in Portland is a local budget issue. Our police force here is way overfunded um, by about $50 million in the last five years. <laughs> they increased there. And so he said, we're, we're on a local budget issue and we're fighting all these outsiders, federal troops, um, police who don't live in the city, our mayor barely lives in the city, our governor doesn't live in the city. You know, so this is just this local budget issue. <clears throat> the police need to be less armed, less violent, less dangerous, less money. So back to Burma. Um, so Myanmar, the government is still way, way overfunding their military. Um, some years ago, you know, it had the largest proportion in the entire world of the difference between healthcare and education spending to military spending, way, way right. up there. And it, there's still a massive disparity of like social programs, things everybody needs and what they spend on the Tamada. They're always getting fancy things, you know, they're like fighter jets, they have a submarine now, all this stuff that they spend money on in China or Russia, or they, they trade resources out. That's where a lot of the forests went, was, you know, traded up to China for arms for these guys. So sooner or later, the accountability has to translate into the local budget issue for, for this country. It's like, what really are your priorities? Are your priorities having, you know, rapacious, out of hand people stationed, you know, in every region, including central parts of the country and having their hand in every single resource that this country could be using. I mean, like the jade trade, it's like so military pocketed. Um, sooner or later, there has to be a better government of people who will stand up to that. And that's what will make a difference. Um, whether that comes about because people really wake up to what's happening in the country by seeing, oh, international, um, you know, concern is happening about it or some other factor, you know, there's always mysterious um, and amazing things and surprises in Burma, right? We've seen many, many surprises over our decades. Um, so a surprise could happen. Um, but again, I just, I want to reiterate that troop withdrawal is needed. And that also means standing down financially and just taking that huge weight off the shoulders of Burma of, you know, just this 
enormous, you know, war level military bloated budget that's harming everybody across the board. You know, even if you're somebody who lives in Mandalay and, you know, thinks that Rohingyas are, are some kind of terrible foreigners or something, you're still suffering from the military because you have a crappy school and you have a terrible healthcare system. So if people in Arakan and Rakhine can have a vision of that we're all in this together, so can other people around the country have a vision of like, we, there are better ways to do this. There are more yeah, I'm, 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 I'm with you, you know, like, whether the military will stand down financially and uh, reduce its strength, um, you know, from the second largest uh, armed forces in the whole of uh, mainland Southeast Asia after Vietnam, uh, you know, uh, uh, remain to be seen. But what what is encouraging is I think, uh, for I me, think if we live as if we live as long as uh, Dr. Chow Win, we'll see it, Sarni. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the you know the 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 silver lining for me is the uh, you know the progressive young generation of uh, yes. uh, you know refined totally. Buddhists uh, that you know whose ideology and self perception transcend faith and race. And yeah. the young uh, Rohingyas, uh, you know, in the camps and others uh, in, in in diaspora who see the reconciliation as both a, a moral imperative and a strategic necessity. And so, you know, I think that could be a model for other uh, communities because Shan Kachins and other states are also multi-ethnic as well, as you well know. And so. But um, any uh, parting thoughts before we end? We just passed um, one hour mark. And yeah, there has always been a, a progressive peace movement in Burma too. Some people say like, why isn't there one? Well, there absolutely is one. Um, in Yangon or Rangoon, there are amazing activists for ethnic reconciliation for a progressive vision without um, exploitation of resources and um, against coal mining and against climate change. And so, um, well, we wouldn't have been Burma activists this long if we didn't keep being hopeful about things. And so as ever, um, that, that gives me hope. The young people give me hope and uh, our veteran activists um, like Ucho Win um, absolutely give me hope. And um, so do you and the work that you're doing, um, especially on the issue of the genocide of the Rohingyas. So thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, so, thanks so much. You've been active on Burma for 30 plus years and so salute to you. And thank you, Edith, and uh, uh, thank you to all the listeners. We, um, we, um, I'm having a conversation with uh, Edith Marante, uh, the most experienced Burma researcher and uh, longest-running activist, and she is still fighting the battles at night in Portland, the federal or autonomous zone of Portland, as she calls it. Yeah, have a good night. Thanks.